Would you pray with me? Our God, as we embark on this most holy endeavor to study the infinite mind of Christ revealed in Scripture, this is an impossible task that You have called us to apart from Your Spirit intervening. Lord, these are finite minds uh, that seek to understand Your truth. We are in humility begging that Your Spirit would help reveal Your Son, the Lord Jesus, in all of His brilliance, in all of His glory, in all of His splendor. And as we look at this masterful portrait of Christ as a servant in John 13, we recognize the impossible standard that You have set for Your people. And yet that impossible standard is met because of Christ, through Your Spirit, equipped by Your Word. You are our enablement to do that which You require of us. We ask You to make Your church shine as we become more like our Master, the Master Servant, the Lord Jesus. We pray in His precious name. Amen. I'd invite you to join me in John chapter 13. I'll be relinquishing the last several weeks of this pulpit to uh, uh, co-pastor Joey as he's uh, returned from vacation. We're so glad to have the Newtons back up north with us. We'll be, I believe, going back to the Gospel of Matthew, but before we go back to Matthew, I thought it would behoove us to take a brief, ever so brief look at John chapter 13, and I know as you look at the number of verses that our, our text is, you'll say that this, we, we know that this preacher can never deal with this many verses at any given time. We will not hold you until uh, midnight today. John chapter 13, we'll read in just a moment, but to set in the context, the context of Scripture and the context of our contemporary significance in our day and age, you look at our society, which is obsessed with love. From romantic movies to popular songs to cheap paperback novels, romance is a, is a primary theme in both entertainment and in everyday conversations. It's also big business as newspaper columnists and talk show hosts and internet websites offer pertinent advice to the lovelorn. But despite all the world's hoopla and talk about love, very few people actually understand the real thing. Real thing. The modern world's version of love is unabashedly narcissistic. It is totally self-gratification, the means to that end anyways. It is self-focused. It is shamelessly manipulative. It sees others as just a tool to get what they want. Not surprisingly, relationships between selfish people do not usually last. If a current partner fails to live up to their expectations or they find somebody more exciting, they move on because people are takers, not givers. 
Humility considered a weakness, selfishness a virtue. And in sharp contrast to where you and I live in our experience in Christendom, in sharp contrast is the self-abasing love that the Bible teaches. The essence of love being self-sacrifice. Instead of tearing others down, biblical love seeks, as 1 Corinthians 8.1 says, to build them up. Instead of first pursuing our own good, love pursues the good and interests of other people. Instead of seeking to have its needs met, it seeks to meet the needs of one another. The Bible's teaching about love reaches its pinnacle in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the most magnificent description of love ever penned. You recall that familiar passage, love is patient, kind, jealous, or not jealous, doesn't brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it doesn't seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account wrongs suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. That is... Biblical love. To love like that requires, above everything else, humility. Because only humble people, only those enlightened by the gospel of God's grace, empowered by the Spirit, motivated by Christ, can put others ahead of themselves. Paul exhorted the Ephesians to act with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, Ephesians 4.2. Jesus taught the same principle. Those who humbly love others will be exalted, not those who promote themselves. So, in, in the biblical manifestation, the biblical description, the heavenly portrait Humility, not pride, is the mark of true greatness, and it brings God's blessing and God's power. And if 1 Corinthians 13 is the supreme description of love, then the Lord Jesus is the supreme example of love, the one that we sit at the feet of to learn from in John 13 this morning. The most significant way He showed His love was, of course, by dying as a sacrifice for sinners. He, he humbled Himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, writes Paul to the Philippians. And as the Lord Himself said, greater love has no one than this, that, that He lay down His life for His friends, Paul reminded the Ephesians, Christ loved you. Christ gave Himself up for us as an offering, a sacrifice to God, a fragrant aroma. Christ loved the church. He gave Himself up for her. John writes that, that we know love by this, that He laid down His life for us, 1 John three sixteen. If last week 
was a study on going to church, eager worship, Psalm 122, then, then this week is being the church. Would you join me in John 13, beginning in verse number 1? Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that His hour had come, that He would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray Him. You notice this list that John is, is setting before us? This is all uh, part of the... Uh, all-knowingness of the Son, so that when He would stoop to wash the disciples' feet, one of them was Judas, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, the unjust, the unfaithful. And so, John has said in this before us that this is all in his knowledge that this same night is when Judas is going to betray Him. Verse 2, during supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin, began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter, and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a save is no greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Like us, those learners that evening probably learned better from modeling and demonstration than by being told what was right. I'd invite you to notice three points in this lesson on servant love, this demonstration, this grandest object lesson given by the master teacher, Christ, as He pictures perfected love, servant love. You'll notice in verses 1 through 5, servant love is exemplified. Servant love is exemplified. These, are, these introductory remarks are meant to, uh, uh, these are, are teaching segments in the latter chapters. Chapters 13 through 17 of John's gospel are the more intimate instruction given to the disciples. So Jesus comes apart from the world, 
with those who are humble, those who are teachable, and sit at His feet to learn. Those who were drawn near by the Father whom the Lord had set His love upon, those whom He had redeemed except for Judas, and throughout the text is riddled with reminders that we do have the exception of Judas, the devil, the betrayer, the one who is much like contemporary religious hypocrites who waste their opportunity. They gather in the visible church week in and week out. So chapters 1 through 12 center on Christ's rejection on a national level. And John, John informs of, uh, us of that in his very first, first chapter and, and the 11th verse when he says that he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name. So the first 11 chapters were on a national, public level, those who had rejected Him. So now, on the evening of His betrayal, the night before the crucifixion, He spends the last hours of His life in private, intimate instruction to those who had received Him. Though it takes John a few chapters to unpack the details, chapters 13 through 17, these only cover the last night the betrayal, the arrest. So bear in mind as we, as we peruse through John 13, we are one day or less than one day from the cross as Jesus girded Himself. So notice the setup. John informs us that this is before the feast of the, uh, of the Passover. This is Uh, Here we've got the institution of the Lord's table, which we partook of last week, and we will do so next week. Only the synoptics clue us into this being the same night. This is Thursday evening after sunset, when John says that he, he knew his hour had finally come. All of his robing himself in human flesh, all of his human ministry here on planet earth was gearing up. That hour had finally come, having, as John says, loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end, ace teleos, to the very end, literally to perfection. It had nothing lacking, something none of us can claim in our pursuit of our love for God or our love for others. Yes, God loves the world. We know John's account in, in the previous, in chapter 3 and verse 16 that we learned in Sunday school, God so loved the world that He gave His Son, and He loves sinners in a particular way that Matthew will unearth, and, and Paul writes to Titus to talk about. He loves the, the, the world of unbelievers with, with compassion and common grace. He gives them health. He gives them jobs. He gives us rain for our gardens. He gives everything to the world. He loves the world, but He loves His own with a perfect and saving and eternal love. He fills to the fullest measure of love. So John tells us at this point, on this night, at this hour, his hour had come, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
and he at this time knew all things. Supper's ended. Judas has already made up his mind. Satan had already put into his heart to betray Jesus. Jesus also was intimately acquainted and and knew the Father's sovereignty and, and timing. He knew where he'd come from, his origin with the Father, and that just a few short hours, his triumph in his glorified state back to the Father. He'd be exalted soon. And having such exhaustive knowledge, notice the sequence of seven actions, seven verbal ideas in verses 4 and 5. Having, having known all this, we're ramping up to the event, he got up. He laid aside his garments, his outer garments, leaving on loincloth and everything, taking a towel, he girded himself, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which he was girded. Imagine the shock. This is a passage I have preached on before. You have read in your devotions. It's a familiar passage. But I dare say in another week invested in studying this that I don't know this passage like I thought I knew this passage. The, the, the depth of the Creator serving the created. Imagine... As, 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 as we read this text through Jewish eyes, though this has minimal impact on our Western thought, it has utmost significance in a shame culture. No self-respecting Jewish person would be caught dead doing what Jesus did here. This was a menial task reserved only for slaves. Only for slaves in this shame culture. The dusty and the dirty conditions of the region necessitated foot washing. This is part of getting into the culture, realizing that uh, they don't have bass or, or uh, grasshopper or whatever kind of shoes we're wearing to, to church today. They had sandals. And to, to ratchet it up to a more significant notch, that this is a task not only that everyone of their day and age needed, but it's a task that is reserved for the, the lowliest of menial servants. Never would a peer wash your feet. You know, by, by stressing Jesus' exaltation, John revealed the depth of His humility. Incredibly and uh, incomprehensibly, the glorious creator and ruler of the universe, the one who spoke the universe into existence, was about to humbly wash the disciples' dirty feet. D.A. Carson, in his commentary, was helpful in putting it this way. He says, quote, "...with such power and status at his disposal..." We might have expected him to defeat the devil in an immediate and flashy confrontation and to devastate Judas with an unstoppable blast of divine wrath. And instead, he washes his disciples' feet, including the feet of the betrayer. You know, at one level, it's 
it's humiliating enough that the Son of God would stoop to serve His followers, those that were learning from their rabbi. But a betrayer? And a, and a third contextual element is, is significant to bring out. Aside from the, the climate of the day, the dusty, dirty roads, and the, and the societal culture that it is a shame culture that how dare you stoop to such low a level to serve people. I think a helpful detail that Luke gives us is worth mentioning. It, over in... Uh, in Luke's account, in Luke 22, in verse number 24, if you wanted to jot that down or, or join me there, here in Luke 22, we've got the preparation of the, for the Passover and, and the Lord's Supper instituted, the hour had come, reclining at the table, the apostles about Him. Luke tells us in, in verse number 24, that at this same time that there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. Think about this. Just a few hours, Jesus will be on the cross. And they're wondering, who's going to be at your right hand who's going to be at your left? That's not proper conversation around the dinner table, not proper conversation around the institution of the Lord's Supper, not proper conversation in going along the way with the one who would be betrayed. These followers of the Master, they've been instructed for a few years, night and day, arguing about who would be greatest in Christ's coming kingdom, and they equally, without hesitation, were fighting for a throne, and not one of them would stoop for a towel. You notice how, how as John unfolds the, the account here, that he had given them apropos time. That typically, when you would go over, you'd be a guest of somebody's house, that the servant would meet you at the door and, and wash your feet. That was, that was hospitality. That was graciousness. But John says, supper's, supper's done. That's when he laid aside his garments and took a towel, girded himself, poured the water in a basin, and began to wash and wipe. Matter of fact, back in Luke's account, uh, uh, a thought occurs that uh, you know, Jesus does instruct them there, not so among you. This is, this is true of the Gentiles. This fighting over and jockeying for position and prestige and authority. So first of all, Jesus exemplified servant love, what it looks like, contrary to the world and the age that we live in. Second of all, He explained it. Servant love explained, verses 6 through 11. And who's He stop in front of? Peter. The, the, the disciple with the, the uh, some commentators referred to him as the, the apostle with the hoof-shaped mouth. He always putting his foot in his mouth. And, and before we throw Peter under the bus, he's meant to exemplify not only his brethren, 
the rest of the disciples who didn't, you know, it wasn't their turn yet. They didn't have the opportunity to put their foot in their mouth. This is to be perceived as the embarrassing part of the account. This, you know, Peter's supposed to be sheepish. This is where you're supposed to be blushed in the account. To give it vividness and face and voice, Peter pipes up. And he speaks with a sense of indignation. Symbolic of the rest, as he often did. He's failed to see past the symbols. He failed to see past the symbolic act, the object lesson, to the spiritual reality and the significance of the cleansing. And to contemporize this timeless principle, since human hearts have not changed since Peter and his brethren, Peter isn't the only one that missed it, the significance of cleansing. I would suggest to you that the bulk of so-called evangelicalism misses the point as well. Much of the church today does not place the proper priority on the the act of cleansing, the priority of what, what Jesus' kingdom is all about, what message He came to offer, what message we as ambassadors take to the world that it's about sin and salvation. It's about the cleansing of the gospel that is missed. Peter missed it. The church misses it. The gospel is negotiated. The gospel today is minimized. It's silent in many churches. Unless you think that that is true of people elsewhere... As we get ready to uh, launch the new, the new uh, website, I figured, well, let's peruse some of the area churches to see what's going on. I haven't darkened a door of the other churches around here except one that went belly up a year ago. And I was on, perusing on the websites, and, uh, which, which a website symbolizes your ministry. It communicates what's important to you. And I found, I was devastated, the most missing element of two megachurch websites in our area was the gospel. I asked our web host, I gave him an assignment, I said, go on some websites and tell me what's missing. I didn't uh, show him my cards. He said, well, I don't know what you're looking for, Pastor Parker, but I can't find the gospel. And if I could quote a bastion who has, who has helped defending the gospel in our day and age, quote uh, R.C. Sproul, if the gospel's at stake, everything's at stake. If you miss the gospel, you've missed everything. Peter, don't underestimate the importance of what is about to occur. Look past the foot washing to the cross. In fact, as, as you study the passage and the surrounding context... And the unparalleled climax of the cross, which would just happen in a few short hours. This whole story is about so much more than foot washing. How many sermons have I heard on servanthood launched from John 13? It's more than just that concept of servanthood. It's about the cleansing of the cross. 
by the substitutionary sacrifice of the one who was raised for our justification. Yes, foot washing speaks volumes about physical displays and the outworking of, of the gospel in somebody's heart. You know, there are natural manifestations, ways that the gospel plays itself out in the lives of those whom it's important to. I'd, I'd expect some of the way that the gospel oozes out in our outworkings is people teaching Sunday school, singing in singing groups, using their giftedness, serving in various arenas, maybe just cleaning the church restrooms, or after fellowship dinner, seeing, you know what, some pots need scrubbing, I don't know, I don't have a whole lot to invest in the work of the ministry, but uh, let's roll up my sleeves and get busy on that. I, I realize that externals can be done without the heart. But if a heart is captivated by the gospel, there will be an overflow. And the most natural outworking of the gospel in worship and service is at the church. Where we seek to determine, well, the moment I was born again by the Spirit of God, what was the giftedness God gave me to work out to the body, to minister to the body? And then we've been given a replete list of over 40 one another's, how we're to be one anothering in the church. You, you might recall last week we mentioned one of, the, uh, one of the reasons why we're eager to go to a house of worship is so that we can be around people to be the church to. And it's hard to be the church to those that you're not around. It, church doesn't take place in isolation. But Peter asked this amazing question. Personal opinion. I'll, I'll, I'll step sideways from the pulpit. Not fact. I don't find it in the text. But I wonder if as Peter is, is asking this penetrating question in verse 6, Lord, do you wash my feet? It's almost like he's curled back. Are you washing my feet? Jesus says, you don't understand, but you will. And then Jesus focuses on the teaching a, a little bit clearer in verse, verse 8. Uh, you know, you know, Peter's, Peter's uh, being obstinate. You notice the exclamation point here. Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you've got, you've got no part of me. Unless you be cleansed. Peter's response is almost hilarious. You might picture a comic strip with a light bulb flashing, wow, if this is what you mean, then wash me all over. First of all, Jesus did too much and now he can't do enough because he just starts to get a glimpse, a foretaste of coming attraction of what is about to take place, the momentous event of the cross. So Lord, verse 9, Lord, don't just wash my feet, wash my hands, wash my head, wash me all over. I get it. There is the cleansing of sin that comes from the atonement. God graciously justifies sinners. 
And then that begins a life of constant washing and sanctification, of putting off sin and putting on righteousness for the glory of Christ. To put it theologically, we, it, when you trust Christ as Savior, when you turn from your sin and embrace Him as your only substitute, you are imputed, you're credited with the righteousness of Christ. Paul writes about this. If, if you wanted to jot down for your meditation later on today or this week, if you wanted to jot down Philippians 3, 8 and 9, this is the element of salvation in the gospel that, that Paul's talking about in, in Philippians 3. When, when he says, you know, if anybody can step up to the plate and show how they deserve, I could. But he said, I've counted all lost. Philippians 3, 8. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, that I might gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, not in my doing, but that which is through faith in Christ, that which has been done by Him, the one who perfectly kept the law on my account. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. The reality Peter need to, needed to begin to uh, work out and understand is not only the, the priority of imputed righteousness through faith in Christ, but we still need to manifest this righteousness practically. Uh, Paul continues on there in Philippians 3, and I'll, I'll connect it here. Philippians 3, verses 12 through 14. He says, uh, not that I've already obtained it. Haven't arrived. Becoming a Christian, having my sins washed away doesn't mean that I've experienced sinless perfection. He says, I press on, Philippians 3, 12. Press on that I might lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There is the significance of being credited with the righteousness of Christ and then walking in a display of that righteousness. Peter says, do you ask my, wash my feet? Lord says, you, you don't understand, but you will. And as he starts to get it, Lord, wash me all over. And so Jesus quickly uh, comes alongside him in verse, verse 10 says, if you've been bathed, you only need to wash your feet because you're completely clean, but not all of you. As Jesus looked around, there were 11 true followers of the Lord Jesus, those who have come near by faith. And that begins a life of perpetual confession and forsaking of sin, working out our salvation, living of the gospel. So servant love is exemplified by the Lord Jesus it is explained by the Lord Jesus, verses 6 through 11. And notice in verses 12 through 17, servant love exhorted. They've seen it. They've experienced it. 
Jesus has given the, uh, one of the grandest object lessons of His day, and He says, do you understand it? Mm, not really. Verse 12, when He had washed their feet and taken His garments, reclined at the table again, He said, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher. You call me Lord. That's, that's orthodox. That's correct theology. You get that right. I am that. But that doesn't preclude him from the object lesson. If I, your Lord, your teacher, the exalted one in your presence, washed your feet, if I stoop to wash your feet, you ought to also wash one another. There's the one another's working themselves as the hand and feet of the Lord. He says, verse 15, I've given you an example. That's all it is. The, the word used suggests a pattern. That's the way it's used in Hebrews and James and Second Peter. Jesus' purpose in washing their feet was to present a model of loving humility. Though there are many groups throughout church history that have, have practiced foot washing as a, as a church ordinance, There, there was a present need that day to wash off the dustiness from the feet. But it pictures, it symbolizes a grander reality. That of inner humility and the need to sacrifice for others as Jesus would soon do on the cross. This act of foot washing was, was more of a prophetic act of the upcoming death on their behalf. The message is that, that they were to love each other, not just in self-effacing service. Don't just serve for the sake of serving. But as was signified in a few short hours, are you willing to die? Are you willing to put it all on the line if it costs you death? That's why John would record in his first epistle, greater, you know, the, this, is, this is a mark of love that you be willing to love others, to lay your life down for others. To follow might cost your life, as Mark tries to capture this, this, uh, this thought of the purpose of why Christ came. Mark 10.45 not to be served, but to serve and give His life a ransom for many. And if we choose not to follow this example, to not follow the example of Christ is to exalt ourselves above Him. If I, your, your teacher, your Lord, it's to live in pride. You know, any disciple, any follower of the Lord can cannot treat humility as, as a nice added feature when I have time or get severely convicted under a sermon sometime. It's not just a nice idea that is unrelated to the Christian life. It is the core that holds it all together. Jesus said, I gave you an example. So if you're superior, your king, your master, stoop to serve... Think about the kenosis in Philippians 2. 
when he robed himself, limited himself to what people could observe, human flesh, limited the free exercise of his divine powers, his greatness in serving. We ought to be competing with one another in service, outdoing each other in love. He says, I gave you an example that you should do as I did. A slave's not greater than his master. If you know these things, verse 17, you are blessed if you do them. Insert in your thinking the word practice. If you practice these, God blesses his servants not for what they know. You can win the theological argument, but at the end of the day, if that theology has not worked itself out into doxology and worship and praise and service, it places great emphasis on it. Great emphasis on not what you're knowing, but what you're doing. A response to the knowing. The blessing, the happiness. So could it be that, if there, that we ought to evaluate our lives if there is a lack of blessing, a lack of happiness, a lack of fulfillment? Is there a correlation? Is there, has there been a lack of obedient service in life? You look at the, the average... Uh, formula or statistics of churches is that 80% of people are doing 20% or 20% of the people doing 80% of the work of the ministry of service that's a, not a normal response nor is it consistent with the gospel and again it's not a matter of how, how often have you heard through the years sermons m- trying to manipulate people and to serve uh, we need somebody in this area i need five hands right now sign up now it's not cajoling people into it it's just in, instructing in the greatness of god and the glory of his gospel and the privilege to be released into ministry to make him famous what an uh, an, an amazing privilege In just a few short hours from this object lesson would be the cross. Greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends, and yet he called them friend. How committed are you to humble service in the body and to the body? Yes to Christ, but this this togetherness, this belongingness. Have you covenanted together with the body in its expression here? Think about that language of covenant. We reflect upon this in uh, uh, men's Bible study yesterday. I think yesterday was Saturday. Uh, And you think about the language of covenant used in Scripture where God said to Noah, I establish my covenant with you and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. The Noahic covenant, the promise, every time we see the rainbow in the sky is a reminder that God is a promise keeper. He's pledged relationship with His people. And to Abraham, God said, I'll, I'll make my covenant between me and you. I will multiply you exceedingly. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And to Moses, God said, Behold, I make a covenant before all your people. I'll do marvels such as have not been wrought in all the earth. How about the Davidic covenant where he said to David, I've I've made a covenant, a promise. I've pursued relationship with my chosen ones. I've sworn to David my servant. I will establish your descendants forever. I'll build your throne for all generations. 
That is to say nothing about the new covenant of which we are part if you're in Christ. Think about how God has lavished His love and covenant to His people. Maybe it's time that we as a church ratchet it up a notch. If you've got a bulletin this morning, you've got a, a copy of what I would, I would encourage you to put your eyes on regularly in your devotions, and your preparations for worship. If we are going to go to church and be the church, what is the church to be? As we pledge together, as we promise to one another through the aid of the Spirit to live out the gospel in community, not in isolation. Having, as we trust, been brought by divine grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to give up ourselves to Him, and having been baptized upon our profession of faith in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we do now rely on His gracious aid, solemnly and joyfully renew our covenant with each other, our promise to be the church, for the head of the church, under the head of the church, will work and will pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That we pledge to walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church. Exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other. So that when the sheep are going astray, the sheep come alongside each other and say, where you been? Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, nor to neglect to pray for ourselves and others. This is a different mentality than what goes on in many churches. A lot of ideas about there, uh, about how the uh, membership just gives us uh, either serving rights in a Sunday school class or, or voting rights at a congregational meeting. To be part of the church is so much more. Don't sell it short. When, when a body covenants together, the body of Christ covenants, to endeavor to bring up such as may at any time be under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and by a pure and loving example to seek the salvation of our family and friends. Those might be somebody else's kids, but I'm praying for their salvation. That's the kind of commitment we're talking about. That we'll rejoice in each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear the sorrows of life, to pray together over our unbelieving spouses represented in this church, to share the burdens of Christ, to gently confront that we seek by divine aid to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, and remembering that as we have been voluntarily buried by baptism and raised again from the symbolic grave, raised to newness of life, there is on us a special obligation to lead a new and holy life. That's our obligation before God and His people. That even when we move from this place, as soon as possible, we'll unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant. I was so thrilled to hear our, our brother and sister that just moved to Texas, uh, Bart and Kathy, they're already members at their church to serve out their dying years till Jesus returns for them or calls them home. Praise God for a commitment of covenant membership. Covenanting together in service until He comes. I think it's important for us as the body and bride of Christ, to take steps to disconnect from the consumerism of our age. This idea, uh, this tendency towards isolation and self-centeredness and passivism. And this idea of, well, what'd you get out of this? It didn't get much out of the service today. Well, what'd you give? 
Developing a heightened sense of priority for ministering to each other. Not just studying, but transmitting God's grace to each other in love. To to foster a ministry mindset in our life together. To meet needs in the body and to spread God's truth as we scatter from this place. Study the covenants of God in Scripture and and the language there. Just shut the burning light off, all of them. Thank you. We can go without the lights, just shut them off. Thank you. Unless you think that a burned out light is our stopping point. <laughs> Lest we be dimmer than a burnt out bulb, join me in verses 34 and 35 and we will conclude in prayer after this. At the culmination of this object lesson, Jesus continues in instruction to those who would be part of the new covenant of Christ. He says a new commandment, not new in kind, new in depth, new in quality. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. When the world looks on at the body and the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ as they are the church to each other, the world has no questions. They'll know that you're the real deal. Would you pray with me? Father, we do pray and ask that uh, we would learn from our Master in this wonderful passage of Scripture on humble servant love, looking past the act to what would come, the cross, and for each of us that have been captured by the gospel, who have been laid low at the foot of the cross when we recognize the burden of our sin that merited us separation from your presence for all of eternity, that you came near through your Son, offering grace and forgiveness and salvation and new life to all who turn from their sin and embrace Him alone. We pray for those that are with us this morning that have questions about that, that we'd be able to speak the gospel into their lives, to take your, your word even this afternoon when we gather and to point others to our, our all-sufficient Savior and help us to covenant with our God and with His people to be the body, to be the church, that when you return, you might find it blameless without spot and wrinkle. We entrust ourselves to your care in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to ask Pastor.